What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. I want to take a moment. I think this is so important from an intentional perspective. First, to say thank you to you. Thank you to you for being part of my experience of being able to express the things I think and feel about that I really sense on a really deep level. Other people think and feel about things and want to explore. And so I really feel honored to be able to have this opportunity. So this is an acknowledgement of you for participating in that sort of uh, transaction. It maybe is the wrong word, but that creation of a space that that's possible. And, you know, I think it's important that our work we create with without the need for it to be heard. Because when we create it for the need for it to be heard, then I'm creating it in a way that I'm trying to please or bring in listeners. And I've always had to sort of stay in that space of like, truth matters before all. And if I just speak truth, I am free. The other side of that is I want to acknowledge you. I want to acknowledge you for that, the very active consumption of anything that is on the journey of inquiry into self is an act of love. It is an act of you saying to yourself that you matter. Just the act of pressing play before you hear whatever you hear, whether it resonates or not, the very act of choosing it. Whatever the consumption is, it just happens to be this podcast episode that I'm speaking about, but it can be anything. The act of searching is an act of love when you want to find an answer to any question, which of course leads to more questions and often (laughs) vague answers and answers that are like, ask more questions. And you're like, shit, there's more to this. It's always deeper. I think if you can just sit in this moment just for one second and just put your hand on your heart and just say, I appreciate me and I acknowledge me for this. So thank you. If this is your first episode that you're catching, you're like, shit, this is what we do every episode. We don't do it every episode. I just felt called to do it. But you know what we do do is we dive into the human psyche, human connection, our own experience of what we're in relationship with, which is everything that's not us and our relationship to ourselves. And it's a beautiful journey. And today we have on a wonderful guest that we are looking at, you know, I've had so many benefits from the experience of meditation. And I think we all sort of get called towards it in some way or another. I know for me, I often feared it. I feared like, "Eh, I don't want to sit and be quiet. I'm one of those people that kept myself busy, an extrovert, et cetera, et cetera. All these like descriptive personality, let's call them personality traits, quote unquote, that were really my survival strategies and often our personality traits, perfectionism, whatever it may be, uh, are survival strategies that we call personality. And so mine was being gregarious and extroverted which is not to minimize our introversion or extroversion. It's just often we turn the volume up on those things as a way of protecting ourselves. And I realized that mine was to be constantly in action in movement and creating and doing and not a lot of being and surrounding myself with other people so that I didn't have to sit with just myself, with my feelings, things that I didn't want to listen to, things I didn't know how to listen to or sit with. And so this is always an invitation to deepen our own practice, our own relationship to ourselves. And what meditation has facilitated for me is one, uh, building a really deep friendship with myself. And and I think that's really important. It's one thing to talk about the subject of self-love. And I think it's another thing to actually cultivate reverence for yourself and, and become best friends with yourself which is a principle that I learned about from Pima Chodron in her book, When Things Fall Apart. She talks about the subject of Maitri, M-A-I-T-R-I, I believe is the right spelling. So today we have this wonderful woman named Laresia, and we are going to explore the subject of meditation, the benefits of it, how to get started with it. And I'm really excited. I think it's so important that we begin the journey or continue the journey 
of understanding it and going deeper into it and how it might benefit us, especially if we're afraid of it. That's a good sign we need to go towards it. I always hated that truth because someone said that to me and I'm like, I'm terrified of meditation and silence. And I'm, now I'm feeling called to do a Vipassana, which is a whole other level. That's like ninja shit, you know? That's what uh, Diego Perez, uh, you might know him as the author, Young Pueblo, he's been on the podcast, incredible guy. He, he does like 30-day silent meditations, which I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with 10 and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Anyways, with all that said, uh, I'm so excited to have the honor of being in your ear today and wherever this finds you. And thank you for taking a moment to sit in that gratitude. If you avoided that, I invite you to do it um, just so you can cultivate that practice and acknowledgement of self. Without further ado, here is today's episode. Hello and welcome, Laurasia Mattingly. So happy to have you here. Yes, thank you for having me, Mark. I'm so excited. So for people who are not familiar with Laurasia's work, she is a meditation and mindfulness teacher, as well as an author of the book, Meditations on Self-Love. And I know that you're also a published author in magazines like Self, uh, giving people tips on how to get in their head, out of their head. You know, like maybe let's get into like, the importance of mindfulness and why you got into it. And also your name has uh, like yes. interest. Yeah. Tell us more. So my mother, who is the reason why I found meditation, her passing actually, but she was such a bright woman. Her name was Lords, and um, she learned about Laurasia in eighth grade. It's actually a hypothetical continent. The world was Pangea. It splits in two, Laurasia and Gondwana land. And Laurasia became Eurasia, North America, South America. And so it's funny, I will actually meet, I've probably met about 10 people who when they meet me, they say, oh, where's your brother, Gondwana land? Or they'll uh, make a joke. Let's hit tectonic plates later. <laughs> oh, hey, that's a good yeah. pickup line. Yeah. That's smart. That's, that's like a very advanced pickup. You almost like kind of want to be like, oh, wow, there's some possibility here. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So you you said that you began the journey into mindfulness due to the passing of your mother. So first off, Correct. really sorry to hear that. And it seems to be in the birthplace of what is your passion and your purpose. So yes. uh, I'm always fascinated by like how often what is our sort of greatest pain or window through suffering is where we find so much. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe walk us through what that looked like if you're open to it. Yes, I am. And actually, it's great because I know you always say on your podcast, make your mess your message. And that's truly what I did. Um, I was a sophomore in college at University of Miami. So party mode on full effect. <laughs> and I was 19 years old and my mother passed. She had stage four pancreatic cancer. So it was quite sudden. And I went home for her funeral and went straight into just avoiding, you know, sweeping all of the pain under the rug. I wanted to go back to Miami. I wanted to fully distract myself. So I dove into partying, hang out with friends. I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to feel my feelings. I buried myself in studies. And I realized that, well, not in that moment. In hindsight, no healing came from that. And so someone had suggested, you know, they saw that I was taking an unhealthy turn, suggested meditation. And it was through meditation and mindfulness that I started to experience my first moments of ease that I hadn't felt because I was constantly trying to distract myself. And so through meditation, that was in 2011, fast forward to 2016 when I started teaching and now 2021, it is a non-negotiable for me. I have mm. to meditate or else, you know, anxiety will get the best of me. Depression will get the best of me. And so I always tell my students, Meditation didn't heal the anxiety. It didn't heal the depression. Instead, what it taught me was how to meet those moments, those difficult moments with more kindness, with more ease, with more space so that I can be present for them. And honestly, the only way out is in. I was doing nothing good by sweeping it under the rug, by distracting myself. So I became so passionate, of course, like anything, when you become obsessed, mm -hmm. I was trying to like force meditation on all my friends. I'm like, <laughs> You're like putting it on all the headlines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to do it. And it wasn't until I became a teacher that I realized, well, it's, it's attraction, not promotion. 
people will see the way that I lead my life now and are asking me, you know, what's the secret sauce? I knew you were in college. I know you now. What is it? And so I realized this, this is my purpose. And so I feel very lucky to have found it. And I feel very lucky that my job requires me to meditate every day <laughs> and, you know, make a difference in people's lives, hopefully. Yeah, I saw on your website, your your offer of sit with it. Yeah. You know, which I love that's that just that, that I mean, it's so simple, especially as a container for what it really is about, which is meditation. Yeah. But just sort of brilliant titling because I thought that's exactly what we're being invited to do is like, can you hold this? Can you hold Mm -hmm. this and not get busy? Can you hold this and not numb it? Can you hold this? Can you just sit with it? How long did it take you from like 2011 to sort of that exploration? And what did the first where and, and, and for people listening, what do you recommend in terms of like dipping your toe in? Like, what is the way to bring in this? Because I'm sure people listening are like, this is what I hear all the time. People go, oh yeah, I love to meditate. I'm just not good at it. Or I don't have time, which that's such a bullshit excuse. <laughs> so I'm curious what your advice is to get us from hearing, because I'm sure someone listening yeah. is like, fuck, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's actually why I created the SIT Society because there wasn't really that approachable aspect for me i dove into ucla's mindful awareness research center i went on long silent retreats there wasn't really that middle ground of i'm curious i want to do it how can i do this without you know becoming a monk or committing (laughs) to becoming a teacher yeah and so i recommend for anyone starting out and that's also why i created the book and why they selected me as the author instead of these old wise sages who i love are these clinical, you know, marriage and family therapists that also teach meditation is I'm kind of like the millennial whisperer, if you will, with these very deep topics. And so I would recommend, you know, I would start with an app, if that feels good, Headspace, Insight Timer. I just recorded some material for the Fit On app, but I'm finding that I think my purpose in this realm of meditation is to make it approachable for the people that, you know, it seems very far away or hard to grasp, or they don't want to become a monk, or they don't want to, you know, practice the dogma. It's That's why I love mindfulness. It's all very secular. It's it's an easy, approachable way to live your life. And that's why I actually think starting with mindfulness over meditation is a great way to start if you're afraid, because, you know, you can do anything mindfully. You can eat your mm. food. You can take a bite mindfully. You can make your tea mindfully, you can put on your makeup, you can do whatever you like to do with a level of awareness that, you know, mindfulness offers us. And then once you feel the the juiciness of the present moment, then, ah, well, let me experience it, you know, with my eyes closed in stillness. And so I would say mindfulness is a nice doorway into meditation. I loved the idea, sit society, like this community aspect of like, hey, we're all going to sit down and get to know our stuff. The invitation to enter mindfulness first. I've never heard that before. That sort of, I've heard the delineation, mm-hmm. but I like that because it says anyone can take a moment and eat a chocolate and be very yeah. present to the like explosion of reactions within the brain, the body, the taste, you know, all the hormones and emotions and chocolate brings out. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think like, so when you explain the difference between meditation and mindfulness, mindfulness being, just so I'm understanding it correctly, mindfulness being this like taking a bite of that thing or looking at a leaf and really just exploring the whole cascade of what a leaf offers, the sort of miracle that it is. Is that right? Correct. It's paying attention on purpose. So like staring at this water bottle on purpose to the present moment. So it has to be in the moment without judgment. And so that's the key piece, the without judgment piece that is freedom. Because as humans, we judge everything we do. We judge other people, we judge experiences, we judge ourselves. And so that's the most freeing part is, you know, oftentimes if you're stressed at work and you're pouring tea, you're pouring tea being like, I don't have time for this. I have these emails. You're judging the experience. This tea is too hot, whatever it is. With mindfulness, okay, I'm just going to sit with the tea. I'm going to pour it, however hot, however much time I do or don't have. And it just, I mean, it truly is better than any drug. Alan Watts says, I think it's him. 
you know, there's no drug greater than the present moment. So mm. when you start to do things that you used to mindlessly do with presence, holy shit. I remember my teacher once said, you know, when you go outside, start to listen to the birds. And I would never listen to birds. You know, I walk to my car, I go to my house, I do whatever I do. But just going outside with the intention of listening, oh my gosh. And so now I always, when I take a, when I meet a moment, I just listen and I feel the sun on my face, things that I've never noticed until I discovered mindfulness. Until so you took the time to notice. Yeah. To so often speak. we don't. Yeah. So often yeah. we don't do that. We're so busy chasing a moment that we are never in this one. You know, like I can't yeah. wait till I go to, which I can understand why people are like, I can't wait to go to Hawaii or I can't wait to get on that plane or I can't wait to, and we're missing the present, always wishing for a better moment, which is, I've certainly been that way. It's like waiting to buy the thing, waiting to feel a thing, waiting, avoiding it, making a choice, you know, that you know is going to set you free. All of this yeah. takes us out of being here now. I mean, even something interesting that I've been having to grapple with is my birth mother found me when I was 18. And before I found meditation, I wrote that off. I was like, I have no desire of meeting this woman. I had so much anger. And as I dove in deeper into my practice, it's, you know, being present with having like anger arise, but also now compassion, because I understand, you know, I don't know what it's like to give a child up for adoption in the third world country. She probably needed to do that. And so it's just like, I always fast forward because that's going to be my next trip, I think, is to the Philippines to meet her. I go through excitement. Wow. I can't wait to meet her and, you know, close this chapter and understand who I am to then getting frustrated. Like, how could she give me up? And so for me, that's really in this moment been the test of like, can I just be with what is and understanding that it changes each time I go one day from being like, I can't wait to meet her. It's going to be great to angry to, to all of the things. And so I'm grateful that I have mindfulness to, to work with that. To be able to sit with all the feelings of exploring. I think as humans, it's really challenging for us to hold the complexity of like, not just one feeling, you know, and, and to forget that we are these multitudes to forget that we are, that it's okay to be angry and excited. It's okay to be, and when you build mindfulness, you uh, that invitation to practice the non-judgment with the hot water, it sounds to me like that builds the skill to be able to do it in when times really matter. Like right. you're talking about. So what, what we talk about, or at least in Buddhist teachings, and I love the psychology, it's, we can use the religion or not, but there's this teaching of the second arrow uh, it's the first arrow is this initial suffering. You stub your toe, your mother dies, you get fired, you go through a breakup, whatever it is. It's the second arrow. It's our own applied suffering, the judgment around, oh, now that I'm single, I'm unworthy of love. Or now that my mother has died, no one's going to want me. Or now that I have a job, I'm useless. It's that second arrow that meditation really works with because we become aware, oh my gosh, that second arrow is something that I just applied myself. Mm. The stories that I tell myself. So once we can just accept the first arrow is there and become aware of, okay, well, let's try not to judge this. We sometimes won't have, we won't apply that second arrow. That's the goal. Or just becoming aware of the second arrows that we apply that cause more suffering than needed. So that without judgment is, is key. That seems like more of the root of suffering than the actual experience it of life. Is. A lot of it, you know? That's like it. I, that's what we're after. <laughs> when I think like that's that's fascinating because that's probably, oh man, I'm thinking about the inherited arrows, you know, the, not only observing that my culture, my family, my religion or whatever taught me that I deserve an arrow after the very thing has already shot me in the fucking heart and the soul, I then get one from my community, maybe yeah. five or six of them just to ensure I'm really suffering, which also is fascinating when you correlate that to sort of like, I remember looking at, uh, learning from Alan Watts, actually, how culturally the story of Jesus is different too, like depending on where the religion story is being told and how in Mexican culture, uh, Jesus is seen as like bleeding more and suffering more. 
And if I'm incorrect in someone listening to that, hey, I apologize. But I feel like <laughs> I remember him saying that there's like this aspect where people are meant to go on their knees for, I think it's a kilometer or something, to suffer, to get like there was something sort of uh, righteous about suffering or something like you're earning it through pain. And that's such a fascinating thought that you should suffer. And that's, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of learning from suffering. But getting back to what you said at the beginning, I think so many of the arrows in our hearts are self-inflicted. And then we wonder why we hurt when it's really, if we just had the awareness that we are inflicting pain upon ourselves by how we see the story or the circumstances, we could literally just pull it out, yeah, you know, and be like, that was fucked. Why did I do that? Yeah. And be like, because someone <laughs> taught you. That's a whole other journey of exploration, but. I literally lived for years believing that second arrow. I thought because my mom passed, because I was adopted, all of these things that that's that I was unworthy of love. That no one's going to want to marry a girl without a mom. No one's going to want to marry this, you know, adopted only child who doesn't have any family. Who are our grandkids? You know, if our grandkids aren't going to have a grandma, I had all these stories that I would tell myself, and I would suffer deeply from them. And it wasn't until I was like, well, I'm the only one creating that story and believing it, it's time to rewrite, rewrite it. And so that teaching is, is one that I speak about often because I was a victim to it for so long. Was there any other juiciness in these teachings? I mean, I'm sure there's lots, but what, what's another super juicy one? The second arrow one got me. So yeah, tell me more. I mean, tell oh, me more. Well, joy and happiness. Here we go. Um, I remember learning, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my favorites that speaks about the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is the cessation of suffering. When suffering is gone, joy is realizing that the causes and conditions for happiness are around you. And so there's a beautiful example, imagining that you're stranded in the desert and you're thirsty and you see water, joy arises. There's the possibility for happiness. I see the water. You drink the water. That's happiness. But the teaching there is you don't need to drink the water in order to feel joy. You just need to see it. Mm. And so it's it's knowing that the sun is shining wow. even on the other side of a cloudy day. And so it's for me, it's like when my outer world seems like it's a shitstorm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> resting in in the possibility for the happiness that is yet to come and letting that possibility be enough. That it already exists. Mm -hmm. by its possibility. I like that. Huh. Just by knowing joy is here. It's an interesting analogy too, because I followed the story as you told it with my eyes closed. And I hope everyone listening rewind and try it because you do feel like, oh, water, perfect. Yeah. And regardless uh -huh. of whether you drink it, it's interesting the state shift that you experience just from possibility. And we are often so negatively focused, ruminating, catastrophizing, we forget to actually we're we're always preparing generally for bad outcomes as opposed yeah. to preparing for possibility and excitement and and if you're preparing for negative outcomes, you're constantly going to be vigilant. You're constantly going to be in this state of probably more aggression to you where you're like defending, defending, defending and not actually giving room for miracles and hope and all the things. And both futures exist is just the right. one, which one are we preparing for? Which doesn't mean we yeah. shouldn't be assertive or protective or anything like that. But can you be both and as you were talking about before to manage and give space for the complexity? Right. I mean, I think again, Thich Nhat Hanh in his book, Fear, he says it best, you know, we must visit the past and the future lightly. You know, we can't fully live present lives. We have to know to show up to work tomorrow or, you know, remember, this is my dad. <laughs> but he says, you know, if you, and this is why meditation is so beautiful, because it makes you a connoisseur of your own neuroses. We're all a little bit crazy. We just get to know the tendencies of our own minds. And so Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, if we tend to rest in the future too much, anxiety will arise. If we tend to rest in the past and ruminate, ruminate, depression arises. And so it's, you know, being able to travel to each very lightly and with discernment. And so for me, my mind loves to live in the future. Hence the reason why back in the day I was prescribed all the anxiety meds. I was very anxious, always worrying, worrying, worrying about the future. 
And yes, meditation made me a connoisseur of my own neuroses. My mind loves to travel to the future. And so when I notice it, I'm like, oh, there I am, planning, planning. <laughs> and then we come back. And so it was, I think it was my third silent retreat that I went on. And I didn't have very much deep suffering in that moment. And so my mind went straight to trying to mathematically figure out how I would pay off my college, you know, my student loans. And I'm like, what am I? Me sitting here on this silent retreat trying to mathematically figure this out right now isn't going to change anything. And so just noticing my, my mind, it always looks for a problem to solve. And this is with many minds, a problem to solve or a memory in which to ruminate. Mm. And so this is the beauty of mindfulness. It's noticing that and then coming back. A connoisseur of our own neuroses. Yes. I really love how you express that because then it isn't about rejecting the neuroses or about judging the neuroses, but rather enjoying it like a delicate, like a, a delectable treat, you know? And I, I really think that shifts things. To, there's sort of like a sense in that statement, which I really love. There's a sense of compassion, acceptance, and actually deriving some sort of appreciation for uh, the uniqueness of one's own special set of neuroses. Yes, yes, exactly. What a different way of seeing that, you know? Of like, mm -hmm. oh, my neuroses is unique, but not in a way that separates me from another because everyone has neuroses is what you're saying, which I, yeah, definitely agree with. Uh, <laughs> but rather like to get to know it, to be intimate with it, to mm -hmm. even discover where it comes from. How does it benefit me? But how does it hold right. me back? How does it make me a prisoner? Um, which I think the second arrow really does as well is like, which I would imagine they're highly correlated. You know, the arrows yeah. and the neuroses love one another because then we are never present. We never get to feel fully everything. But we also, I mean, avoid responsibility. We avoid suffering. We avoid pain. And yet we live in it. It's a very interesting paradox. It is. Because I'll have days, you know, by no means am I always mindful. I'll have days where I'm aware. I'm like, oh, I'm going to mindlessly eat this sushi right now. And I'm just like mindfulness out the door you know, doing things without it. But for me, and I think Jack Kornfield, he says this, he says, you know, there are no enlightened beings. There are just enlightened moments. And so even for myself on this journey as a student, always a student, but also a teacher, it's like, I used to put these harsh parameters on myself of, you know, well, a meditation practitioner wouldn't do this or wouldn't do this. And it's, it's being kind with myself, even in those moments when I you know, flip off a stranger when they cut me off, a very not <laughs> mindfulness teacher of me, but you know, and so that's why even in my journey of sobriety, that was like an I, enlightened moment. Sorry. Yeah. yeah I had, a, I did a year of celibacy and sobriety, which is another story of, you know, feeling unworthy and realizing, okay, it's, there's something to be done here. But after I ended that year and I had a little blip, a little hiccup and I was so hard on myself and then I was like, well, I'm going to be sober again. Let's do another year. And realizing the moment that I soften my parameters and become kinder to myself, it's so much less suffering and the journey is so much easier. Mm. So, Yeah, it reminds me of that quote from AA that it's about progress, not perfection. You know, and I think there is having also uh, lived in a period, a commitment to celibacy and uh, sobriety. I haven't I don't drink anymore. I haven't drank in a couple of years now, mm -hmm. but you know, the, I learned so much from both of those continue to learn from that, the, the sobriety from drinking and also from when I was celibate too. celibate just makes me feel like I was a monk or something. I was not, <laughs> but I just was not engaged in any sexual activity. And in doing that, I got to know all, because it was, it had become sort of a drug for me, like a treatment for a loneliness and a treatment for like, oh, I could go chase desire and arousal to avoid any feeling other than positivity or, you know, with alcohol that, you know, I, I just did a podcast with Laura McCown, who's an incredible, she's, she's sober. She wrote a really incredible book. And, you know, I was just sharing with her, like, it was amazing when I first went down this exploration of sobriety. I remember listening to this guy speaking about sobriety and he was like a former investment banker, 
doing lots of cocaine and drinking and working 20 something hours a day. And he said he woke up one day and he just realized that he was never getting to actually enjoy his life. Everything was just right. And he just decided to stop in that moment. And I remember he asked, like, what's the most important thing for you uh, to the audience? And I was like, connection, for sure. And I realized I was time traveling through the thing that I most enjoyed, that I was um, so that I was numbed or not even fully present. And I've realized so much that the that there's so much deliciousness to life when you're in that mindfulness space that like you can find such beauty in the most mundane thing. Yes. And that becomes this like incredible gift. So I'm curious what your experience was for celibacy and through celibacy and sobriety and like what gifts were cultivated. Cause I'm always fast. Like for me, they were, they were life-changing. Yes. Changed my life completely too. I, they both began unintentionally. It was the kind of beginning of my teaching career. I had like just started teaching at all the best places, the best clients. And so career was looking good on the outside. Even my dating life, I thought, oh, I'm dating this actor. Like this is the LA girl's dream. My <laughs> outer world looked perfect. I was talking the talk, but I wasn't walking the walk because I remember just leaving this date, had my overnight bag and I was at one of my favorite hotels in LA and I was like, okay. And I just felt empty. And I didn't know why. And it was a feeling that I had been masking probably for quite some time. But that was the day that I was like, why do I feel so empty when everything on the outside looks what one would think is perfect? And so that got me just, you know, really thinking as a like, well, okay, I'm just going to quit alcohol and let's get to know myself. And then sure enough, right away, I was like, okay, we need to cut out the, the sex too and just not distract myself. And then it made me realize all of this came from feeling insecure, thinking I needed to date the prominent LA person to be worthy. The alcohol was, again, insecurity and worthiness. Okay, if I drink this and become more talkative and more friendly, I'm more likable, wanting to be likable. And so really just peeled away all the layers again. You know, I thought I had figured it all out, you know, with meditation. And really, it was another big kind of pause in my journey where I was like, okay, time to get real with yourself again. Let's peel away the layers that aren't working. And so in that year, I accomplished so much. I realized how much of my mental space was taken up by worrying if a guy liked me or not, if they would text me back or not, if I would find the one. Because I had this existential rush to find someone because my mom had passed away and my dad mm. is 85. And I had this fear of being alone, which... This is another conversation for another day, but I've done so many past life regression sessions where I lose my parents at a young age. And so here I am now, having already lost my mom, working with, I will lose my dad in the near future. He is 85. Can I be okay? Mm. And so finally peeling away the alcohol, peeling away the guys, okay, Larisha, you're on your own. Can you be okay? And so in that year, oh my gosh, I realized how much I had settled how much I, you know, you always talk about it's a self-abandoning when you settle, how much I was abandoning myself. And so just picking myself over and over again, staying home. And in that year, I started my business. I wrote my book. I know myself wow. better than I've ever known myself. So much happened from that. <laughs> and so it, it was the best year ever. I even remember... I went to Tulum for my birthday and I was with all of my friends from South America and they're all big drinkers and partiers. And I did that completely sober and still managed to be the life of the party. So I was like, I can do this, <laughs> you know, I, I, know I can do this. Way. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I also realized how beautiful waking up with the sun rises. Mm. When I was sober, it's just something that I try to incorporate, especially when I'm in LA I was going on sunrise hikes. But that's actually one of my biggest takeaways from Bali. I had never seen it in a culture that they live for sunrises as much as sunsets. And so that was huge to me. And being sober in that year, I was able to wake up full energy all the time. And it was great. It was great. And so I rarely drink now, but when I travel, time and place. And it's never to get drunk or mask anything anymore, which it used to be. I don't remember the last time I was drunk 
Um, but now it's with intention, you know, I'm in Mexico. I'll try the special mezcal or whatever it may mm-hmm. be, but it's never what it used to be because actually my first teacher training, I thought I wanted to be a sex therapist. <laughs> and so I did a ton for training and my teacher, Salma Zadora, she passed away, but she talked about how with trauma, we tend to turn hyper or hyposexual. And I had turned hypersexual thinking, oh yeah, like I'm empowered and all of this stuff. And so that was kind of a my toe dipping and realizing, okay, <laughs> maybe all of the sex that I used to have was not empowered. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Mm. I was trying to fill a void, constantly trying to fill a void. And so in celibacy and in sobriety, can't fill your voids with anything except, you know, being there and realizing then that it's not a void even. It's just a tender part of the heart that needs some care. Mm, I love that reframing of void actually being a space that needs love. Because it sounds like void makes us feel like there's a spot missing as opposed to a spot that needs compassion and tenderness and presence. I remember saying to my friend, and thank you for sharing all that because it's... um, I certainly feel so a lot. <laughs> I've, I've, no, it's beautiful. I feel like there's probably so many reflections for someone listening, but also of my own experience of, like, I remember saying to my friend, you know, I just want to meet someone. I was in that sort of state where, you know, where you like see someone standing at a traffic light or something, a couple and they're cute or whatever. And you're like, what does that person get? Or, you know, you're like, <laughs> what do they get a relationship? Or you like know yeah. someone who's not a great person. And you're like, that fucking person has a partner and I can't fucking, you know, like we become yeah. righteous and indignant and nothing ever good happens from that space. You're certainly choosing to settle if you're in that energy. You're like, I just need to fill this spot so I feel good about myself. Recognizing that if good about yourself has anything to do with your relational status, you got it. You're going to lose the relationship just to figure out that it's not connected (laughs) to that shit. Not shit being bad, but you know what I mean? And I remember saying to him like this sort of energetic of like, I just want to find someone. And I remember him saying to me like, he asked me two things. One, he said like, do you feel alone or lonely? And I said, I feel lonely. And he said, you know, the differentiation is that loneliness is the belief that someone else will bring you what you seek. And I remember being like, whoa, okay. I don't like what you said, but I can like, you know, when someone tells you a truth and you're like, fuck you, thank you. It's like a thank you. And then he went on to say like, what is it that you want in a partner? I was like, you know, someone who like hikes and exercises and does this, this and this. And he's like, how many times do you think you've been out in your life to like a bar or a restaurant or a pub or whatever drinking? And I was like, probably 34 when he said this to me. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know, probably a thousand. I've been out a lot, (laughs) a lot of years to go out there. And he was like, out of a thousand times, how many times have you met someone that you ended up in a relationship with that was significant? And I'm like, hmm. He's like, well, that pause is enough to tell me. And I was like, I think once. And he's like, and what do you miss by choosing that? And I was like, oh, like getting up early, being, you know. And I remember he was like, so you, one out of a thousand times, you then miss the activity that is most likely to bring you to the places where you'll meet people that are aligned with what you say you want. And I was like, that's so simple. Like why has no one broken this down to me like 500 nights out ago? You know? So when you say just like that, that experience of validation, that experience of like, I was certainly hypersexualized too. And that was masking so much fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of being betrayed. But I was so afraid to go in those feelings. I thought I'd be lost in them. I thought I'd die in them. And then you go into them and you're like, this is the most beautiful humanistic place I've ever been where you're like marinating in what someone thought was suffering, but really is actually just the beauty of being a person. Yeah. So what inspired a passage in my book from that whole sobriety and losing my mom and feeling unworthy is, you know, make your mess, your message. And so my passage in my book, the beauty that comes from pain. If a sea star loses an arm, a new one begins to regenerate. New life is born from where it has been cut. I think it's the same for humans. Often where we hurt is where the healing begins. 
It is from my wounds that wisdom and understanding arises. Let us all begin to notice that perhaps this is what life teaches us. Beauty comes from pain. Not all pain is bad. It's just a seed planted for wisdom and healing, ready to grow. Let us view pain as a sea star, healing from its cut arm, a place where beauty grows. Center yourself and feel where there is pain. And just as a sea star regenerates its arm, let your breath show you that beauty is growing from where you are hurt. Mm. I think we all know that too innately, hey? Like when I hear Mm -hmm. what you wrote, I think it just reminds us of that truth. You know? But it's like we're so... uh, I don't want to say addicted to, because that's probably not the right term, but we're so taught. We're so taught. We're taught. (laughs) I'm like, that's not the right sentence. We're taught that we should plug it up or numb it or drug it or, and, and, and not that there's so much magic in that. And I hope that at least, you know, through conversations like this and through podcasts like this, but many, and many teachers, that we just be reminded of that, that that actually becomes normalized, you know? Yeah, totally. Hmm. I wonder what it would, the world would look like, though, if we normalized, because I think suffering was just part of normal life, as was community, as was presence, as was a symbiotic relationship with nature and uh, reverence for not just one another or animals or plants, but actually a reverence for discomfort, a reverence for pain, not in a way that's like, you know, masochistic. But right. Anyway. Or even, yeah, like there's the fine line that I always explain, especially when I teach self-compassion, because you can very easily do more harm than good when you turn towards your suffering It's like rather than wallowing in the suffering, self-compassion and compassion in general has this almost this element, again, hope, knowing, okay, yes, this may be very shitty now, but, you know, there is light on the other side. You know, the sun is still burning on the other side of the clouds. And so that's where I always have to make a distinction. It's not let's wallow in our suffering and make a party of that. Let's acknowledge it. Let's care for it. And know that we have the ability to transform. And so my teacher always described compassion and self-compassion as a healing balm. Because many of our wounds are tightly, tightly knotted. We've inherited them from past lives, from childhood, from whatever it is. So when they manifest in little ways, they're not just, you know, I have dating issues. It's like abandonment, fear of aloneness, whatever it is. And so self-compassion, just by turning towards that and becoming aware that we have this fear of being alone or abandoned and just caring for it little by little, day by day, we apply this healing balm and that deeply knotted wound will begin to soften and soften and soften and soften. And so it is, it's no longer a void. It's just noticing the tender parts of the heart and caring and without judgment. You know, it's sometimes frustrating when you realize you have that same goddamn wound every time. Ah, abandonment again. <laughs> but, you know, we call them in mindfulness our frequent visitors. Ah, oh, there I she like is that. again. <laughs> abandonment. <laughs> Let's care for her again today. And so that's why mindfulness is so freeing because, yeah, maybe your frequent visitor every day is anxiety. Okay, let's care for it. Or maybe you tend to be angry and it's always anger. It's okay. It's like Rumi's poem, The Guest House. Let's invite him in, laughing. <laughs> that invitation to slowness is what I think we are, uh, at least in my experience too, of myself. There was so much fear of the, of the slowing down because part of my strategy to not feel was to be fast, to be productive, to always have stuff to do to be gregarious and meet and hang out with people and party and <laughs> and laugh and but in a way that you know like anything that's turned up too loud is a way to not hear things and often we can be celebrated for the things we turn up too loud like 
We can turn fitness up too loud. We can turn productivity up too loud. We can turn all perfectionism and and be celebrated. Spirituality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea, because when I think of someone discovering that they have a wound, which is really like noticing, finally acknowledging, is like, how do I fix it now? How do I stop being triggered? How do I not? It's like, how do I hack? this thing? How do I do this so fast again? And it's like, everything is about quick fix, quick change, and no reverence for the the moment and the journey of like, the wound didn't occur in a microsecond. Right. And it's, nothing feels acknowledged by being swept away. Do you know what I mean? Totally. There's no room for grace. So it's, it's, that's why for me and why I created this society and why I make it about such relatable issues and difficulties that we deal with. It's, and you have to do it. You sustained practice over time. That's how we're going to, you know, work through these things and actually soften the wound. Many people look for quick fixes and meditation is not a quick fix by any means. You will have those glimpses and moments of ease and peace and overwhelming joy but in order to see it in your life just a little bit each day and so that's why even my meditations like when I, my own personal practice and when I go on long retreat yes I would love to meditate for two hours a day but the way that I I formulated my own program is you know just 10 minutes a day a little bit caring for your heart what does it need today body what do you need today you know we're constantly telling our bodies, do this workout, eat this food, climb these stairs. How often do you just stop in stillness and say, body, what do you need? And for me, usually it's, I need water <laughs> and, and rest. And that's also something that I think Western society has such a hard time doing is resting and being still. We look at not having plans or taking the day off to watch Netflix as you're not successful or you're not a career woman or whatever it is. And that was the biggest hack, if you will, for me, was realizing that rest and recovery is just as much, if not more, important in what I do. And so one of the biggest game-changing books for me in 2020 was Essentialism by Greg mm-hmm. McEwen. So Canadian brand, Lululemon, um, when I was an ambassador two years ago, they had an onboarding for all of the global ambassadors from around the world. And they gave each of us this book. They said, you all are masters of your craft. Here's how you can do what you do better. And so this book has been sitting on my shelf for two years. <laughs> COVID hit, and I'm going to read all the books that I own. And I read it, and I was like, what? It's the disciplined pursuit of less. Essentialism. This sounds like the best thing ever. Oh, my gosh. Now I say no like it's my job, and it's not only about saying no. But you know, essentialists say yes to only 10% of the opportunities they're given because they're so clear on what it is that they want. Essentialists, you know, understand and see the importance and rest and vacations. They even have a system in play for like purging their closet. And it's all of these things that I'm just like, wow. And so somehow (laughs) with quarantine, I realized I'm all about minimal effort. I do not like committing to times or places, now even times. And somehow I'm doing what I do better by exerting less energy and being more valuable with my time and now getting better business deals, you know, more, more money for doing less. And it's just because I've channeled this, you know, I used to think, teach here, 11 classes a day, say yes to all of these opportunities, spread myself thin. That's it. And it's like taking a step back, it's quite the opposite. So the disciplined pursuit of less. And how much you realize your worth isn't tied up in doing yeah. You know, doing. Oh, fuck doing. <laughs> right. And we end up with that. You end up recognizing that you're part of a system that put worth in achievement and hustle because it satisfies the corporate model. It's like, totally. Like, I remember working for this company that was, uh, they were like, oh, you got to move to the head office to go learn this thing, blah, blah, blah. And I remember all my friends who worked at the head office, it was like the first person in and last person to leave was celebrated. I'm like, that is the complete opposite of the life I want to live, where my boss isn't looking at what I do, but rather 
oh man, you hear this all the time, optics. It's like, yeah. why can't I work from home? Optics. It's like, that's not an actual answer. That's called yeah. perception, managing perception. If I have to manage perception as opposed to just producing quality work, but yet a quality life, it's like, it makes no sense to me. Like I would never want my employees to be like, I better log back on the computer, Mark. I want him to see that I'm working. You're not doing anything. Yeah. And I'd rather yeah. you, you know, like I th- that's so stupid to me. And I think we live in a world that has been co-opted by these corporation, the sort of corporate industrial mindset. And I mean, there's yeah. many where layers. value is placed in in busyness. Oh, I was I'm busy today. I was busy. Right. Like it's the opposite for me now. Oh my god. The busier you are, no. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I'm yeah. not gonna lie. I'm still like, you know, I was I was sharing on a previous podcast that I'm like still healing my my relationship to collective codependency. You know, like mm. relationally, I'm doing pretty good, but I think from like a collective perspective, it's like saying yes to too many things. And I now know in my body from the experience of mindfulness and meditation when a yes is really a no and it used to be a survival strategy and now it's like, I can't survive if I do it, if that makes sense. Right. Totally. How do people continue? So they're going to start with the mindfulness The you know, hopefully they're, as they're finishing up this podcast or listening to it, that they might be driving more mindfully or walking mindfully or eating their lunch mindfully. And they just practice that. Uh, how do they take that a step further? Where do they find your book? Where do they find more of you? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. So uh, after experiencing the juiciness of doing something fully with full presence, because that'll yeah. get you hooked. Um, they could find my book, Meditations on Self-Love, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Target. Follow me on Instagram, Laurasia Mattingly. I have the link to my Spotify albums, Apple Music albums. I have short, very accessible meditations out there. Or if you really want to dive deep and sit it out with me, the Sit Society is a great place to start. We have live meditations every Sunday. So we have the beauty of community. And I also pre-record and upload every single week a new 10-minute instructional meditation video. And they're not daunting topics. It'll be stuff like, you know, my topic I just talked about was the spaciousness of perspective. When we tend to look at something thinking this is the way, what happens when we take a step back and look at it with new eyes, right? Talk about disappointment. I think I got a no from something that I was waiting for a yes from. So I talked about, okay, you know, what's it like to work with that feeling of disappointment and how are we judging that and how can we soften it? So the Sit Society is a great place to easily access meditation. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing parts of your journey with us today and the message that you've cultivated through the messiness of life and and really following that bliss though and following your path because with it thank we you. you know people are being invited through your experience to to do the same so really yeah. appreciate you being on the show today thank you mark thank you for having me such an honor 